There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Osmium and astatine and radium and gold and protactinium and indium and gallium and iodine and thorium and thulium and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium, boron, gadolinium, niobium, iridium, strontium, silicon, silver, and palladium, and barium, 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 and
and uh, their appearance uh, out of the hat uh, really uh, did not put any special burden uh, on them. They were in quite a comfortable uh, situation. But anyway, the rabbits, uh, uh, they were incidentally, both of them were called ether. Why? The ether rabbit, right? Anyway, uh, both ethers eventually left us and uh, I ended up uh, replacing them with a synthetic rabbit. And that turned out to be even more in line with our show because it paved the way for a discussion of, of synthetic chemicals. Anyway, pulling a rabbit out of a hat, uh, it really is an iconic magic trick, isn't it? In fact, it, it symbol, symbolizes uh, stage magic. And uh, the origin of this trick is, is not uh, actually all that clear. If you uh, read uh, books on history of magic, of which I have many, some will refer to a French magician, Louis Conté, uh, around 1830, who is said to have introduced the trick. But uh, others give credit to Scottish magician John Henry Anderson, uh, who uh, apparently had some posters depicting pulling the rabbit up. Although, uh, honestly, I can't find one. But I do have reports in books that I've seen about the existence of these uh, posters. Anyway, uh, Anderson labeled himself as the great wizard of the North, and he used to produce a rabbit from a hat on, on stage. He, he also was uh, very much against uh, spiritualists, as many magicians are, because he didn't like the idea that these fraudulent mediums and spiritualists would uh, uh, use magic tricks to, to try to convince people that they were in contact with the spirit. Anyway, the, the rabbit trick is, of course, widely regarded as a symbol of magic. But the fact is that these days, very few magicians actually perform it <laughs> uh, for the same reason that, that I eventually gave it up, uh, that it is hard to, to uh, keep the rabbit. But uh, Marty the Magician, an American magician, does. And in fact, he has a license to do so. Believe it or not, in the U.S., you need a license to pull a live rabbit out of a hat. You don't need a license to have a gun, but you need a license to pull a rabbit out of a hat. Anyway, Marty learned about that requirement in 2005 when after a show for children in the library, a Department of Agriculture inspector appeared and asked to be shown the license. Because it seems that way back in 1966, a law had been introduced requiring zoos, circuses, and roadshows to obtain a license for exhibiting animals. And that, of course, was contingent on showing that animals were being properly cared for. And of course, we can identify with that. Obviously, they should be properly treated. And it was this law that brought the inspector to Marty's show and resulted in him having to pay $40 every year for a license. Now, it's also interesting to note that the law only applies to warm-blooded animals. So if instead of a, a rabbit, if you want to pull a snake or an iguana or a crocodile or a small alligator out of that hat, you don't need a license. Well, Marty was happy until 2009 when another law was introduced requiring licensed exhibitors of animals to have a written disaster plan for their animals. And Marty now has one of these. It covers how his rabbit will be handled in case of a flood, a tornado, a heat wave, or some sort of uh, chemical leak. 
So of course, it's uh, not surprising that most performers have resorted to using synthetic rabbits. But not Penn and Teller. Uh, they performed a classic trick with a live rabbit on the Jimmy Fallon show. And if you just go on YouTube and put in Penn and Teller, rabbit, Jimmy Fallon, you'll see it. I think it was a really, really neat uh, uh, performance. Uh, I don't know if they have a license to produce that rabbit or not. Uh, another one that uh, you may want to take a glance at is Paul Daniels, a very well-known uh, magician in England who had a different take on it. And there too, if you just Google Paul Daniels and uh, rabbit, uh, I think you will see that video and you will enjoy it. So once more to uh, all of our friends and listeners who are celebrating uh, the Lunar New Year, whether they are in China or any other Asian country or right here, of course, in Montreal, we have a large Asian population. Happy Year of the Rabbit. Right now, we'll check traffic. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, I think we have Kenny on the line. Kenny. Yes, how are you? Hi. Happy, I'm a Chinese New Year today. Am I? It's my our family having Chinese New Year this evening. Chinese New Year. Yes. Yes. So I have a question for the ingredient ingredient burger. You know. Okay, go ahead. This ingredient not only it tastes like burger, but it has stay juicy and moist and slightly red at the center when you cook it. The, the burger on the on the grill, right? Yes. What makes what makes the Impossible Burger taste like meat? That was the question. So, what's the ingredient? The ingredient, yeah, they, they have iron-rich protein. They have uh, hemoglobin. Uh, water. They put water and protein and coconut oil, right? Yes, but what is the specific ingredient that makes it taste like meat? I mean, you're, you've skirted around it, but I want to hear the specific ingredient that makes it taste like meat. Um, if, well, they put some uh, type of uh, 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 juicy burger in the, on the side or for animal and planet, you know? Uh well, you've, you've, like I said, you've skirted around that the, the actual ingredient is heme. Now, heme mm -hmm. is part of, heme, people will know it's part mm -hmm. of hemoglobin, which, of course, is the stuff that we have in our red blood cells that carries oxygen around. Right. But, but uh, a chemical related to human hemoglobin called lec hemoglobin, the lec stands for legume, so leguminous hemoglobin, is found on the roots of the uh, soybean plant. And uh, that uh, can be used uh, to put into uh, all kinds of vegetable products, including uh, soybeans themselves, to make it taste like meat. And this is what the Impossible Burger people have, have done. However, uh, it is very, very difficult and time-consuming to have to extract the, uh, the heme from like hemoglobin uh, on the roots of the soybean plant. So what they have managed to do is take the gene 
from the soybean plant that codes for the production of leg hemoglobin and insert it into yeast. And then they ferment, they carry out a fermentation reaction where the yeast multiplies and it produces large amounts of the leg hemoglobin, which then they incorporate into, uh, into their burger, which is made of uh, a vegetable protein. And it does have a very meat-like flavor and even kind of looks like meat because it will squeeze out sort of a, a red juice. The only issue uh, with it is that it is very high in salt. In fact, it is significantly higher in salt than a regular beef burger, but it does taste uh, pretty good. It does have a competitor and the competitor is the Beyond Burger. Now that is formulated in a different way that is actually made from pea protein. And it's got all kinds of other, uh, other ingredients besides uh, the pea protein, the soy protein concentrate and coconut oil, sunflower oil, potato pro protein. Uh, it's got uh, a whole collage of, uh, of additives. So both of these burgers are in fact highly processed foods but they are environmentally more friendly than meat because they don't require as much uh, land as animals do, and they don't require as much water in, in their processing. So they are in, uh, indeed more environmentally friendly. In terms of nutrition, there actually is not all that much difference. Uh, they don't contain any cholesterol, of course, because cholesterol is found only in animal products. They contain somewhat less fat than a, a beef uh, burger. Uh, they contain roughly the same amount of protein, but they contain significantly more sodium, which is an issue for a lot of, uh, of people. So I would say that the main reason to uh, indulge in either one of these burgers is for uh, environmental concerns more than for health issues because in terms of nutrition, there really is not much, uh, much difference, but they do leave an environmentally smaller uh, footprint. So that's the story beyond those burgers. Uh, if, uh, if you wanna comment on those, if any of you have tried these, I'm always happy to hear about uh, your experience with them and uh, whether or not you really think that they taste like, uh, like meat. All right, so we've done away with uh, uh, that question. But we still have the other questions that um, I uh, posed for you. The one that was uh, hanging over from last time was why Britain banned banana imports in 1940. And the other question is, in 1912, newspapers began to report on a club called the Just Missed Club. Eventually had 118,000 members. What is it that these people had missed? Okay, I think we've got uh, someone on the line. Uh, Edward. Good afternoon, Dr. Joe. I cannot answer the question, but I would like to ask you a question. What's that? It's about these pouches that you talked about, the flexible plastic where food is um, uh, marketed. And there's one that uh, has a, you know, like a, a puree of fruit for children where they suck it out of the nipple. So how much of the chemical uh, leached into the um, material inside, you know? Well, I'm, not, I'm not catching what you're saying. What is the product you're talking about? 
and the product is uh, is a um, uh, children's uh, like like children suck a bottle you know a bottle of milk this is uh, for little children that has a, a puree of strawberry and other uh, apples and stuff but in this pouch and there's a nipple and uh, how long does it uh, stay inside there without leaching any any you know pcb well, those okay the, these things have to be tested uh, to see whether or not they leach anything and usually the nipple is made of of, uh, of silicone or rubber yeah. and uh, they will leach uh, essentially nothing uh, mm -hmm. but of course uh, there no matter what if you go down to a low enough level you know, if you start looking at parts per trillion, then everything is contaminated by everything else. So um, it's a question of, of amount and how deeply you are going to, to look. But governments try to make sure that uh, nothing significant uh, leaches out. So when you have a product like that uh, package for children, it has to jump through all kinds of hoops and hurdles before it can be put on, on, on the market. Right. But, but I can guarantee you that if we were to go down to the parts per trillion range, which we can do today with our analytical chemical equipment, we would find hundreds of different compounds in there, both from, from packaging and from natural ingredients in, in the food. But uh, those amounts are way too small to have a concern about. What about chips and other stuff, uh, spices and stuff that come with this uh, flexible, uh, shiny from the inside and printed on the outside? Yes. Okay. Well, that, this is an interesting, uh, you know, uh, issue because there the concern of, is about the so-called perfluoroalkyl substances, and these are um, embedded in the uh, in the plastic to prevent moisture from passing through and prevent grease from passing through. Right. Uh, these alcohol substances are concerned because they, some of them, I mean, there's about 12,000 of these that are in, in, in use, but some of them are endocrine disruptors. And uh, uh, that is always an issue. Of course, once again, the, it's a question of dose and just how much leaches out. But today there is there is concern about these things, and as as you probably know, there's a movement away from packaging um, uh, in plastics. Uh, I don't think that it's a significant risk in terms of the product itself. The biggest risk is that when these products end up in the environment, then they will leach out into groundwater, and that can come back and and haunt us because um, we of course consume drinking water. So it's the presence of these in the environment, and that's where eventually they end up. That's the concern, not to the individual who is sipping from that uh, container or is eating a spice from that container. It's a question of where that container eventually ends up and what happens to it. And when it biodegrades, it leaches out stuff into the environment. So that is the... Uh, the issue that we are concerned with. And I want to tell you an interesting story about that, about a, a class action lawsuit that was launched in the U.S. based on, on this concern. So I'm, I'm glad that you brought this up, but we're going to have to take a break for the news. And after that, I'll be back and tell you all about this class action lawsuit against Simply Orange Juice.
All right. Uh, let's see if Jerry can show me what he learned. Jerry, you have an answer to one of my questions? I do. Permit me if I can. I just finished reading Quack Quack last night, Dr. Joe. I enjoyed it thoroughly as usual, and I just can't believe how stupid people are. So just thought I'd let you know. <laughs> that you enjoyed it, and uh, uh, obviously I can believe that. So. Yes, I have them all, by the way, and enjoyed every single one of them. So just thought I'd let you know. Okay, you got an answer yeah. for me. Yes, I do. I think it's they missed the Titanic. They they yes. didn't sail on April 12th. <laughs> That's right. And I think yeah. it's a fascinating story that they actually made a club out of this. Yeah. And of course... 118,000 people claimed <laughs> that they had missed the Titanic, a, a ship. ship that I don't know what was only capable of carrying about 2,000 people or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so there you go. It's another piece of human folly. Right? <laughs> thanks, okay, Dr. Joe. thanks very much. Yep. Okay, uh, I think we also have Edward with a question. Uh, yes, uh, Dr. Joe. So, um, yeah, about this plastic, how can we? How can they be safely um, disposed of? Uh, because uh, the recycling, I guess, is uh, you just have the blue box, you know? Yeah. Right. Well, un unfortunately, uh, it is still the best thing that you can do is put it into the blue box. And uh, the sorters know which ones can be uh, properly recycled and which ones need to go right. into a, a landfill. So... Um, you just got to trust that. There's nothing that you yourself can do. So it's safer to remove the material inside the, the, the plastic when we purchase, like uh, like spices and stuff like that, and then transfer it into a bottle for, for safekeeping and dispose of the plastic? It, well, glass is always the best for storage. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Thanks a lot, Doc. Thank you. Okay. Now, uh, as I said, I was going to talk about this uh, interesting lawsuit. And as you probably know, in the U.S., it's pretty easy to launch a class action lawsuit because you have all these, you know, ambulance chasing lawyers uh, who will try to um, uh, basically make a case and, and they do it on contingency. Uh, they get a big share if they win the case. Uh, so there's really uh, no big risk for people uh, to, to launch such a lawsuit because they don't have to invest any money. Now, in this particular case, uh, someone organized this lawsuit against Coca-Cola. They are the producers of Simply Orange Juice. And the allegation is that uh, this product markets itself as containing all natural ingredients, being simply natural and with nothing to hide. And yet when um, this guy allegedly sent a sample of this to some laboratory, uh, they discovered uh, these uh, perfluoroalkyl substances in the juice. And he says that, that the, this uh, uh, really dismayed him because, you know, he, he was trying to, to consume things that were healthy. And here there were all of these, uh, you know, contaminants. Well, it's hard to know at this point what to, to make of this because there was no mention made of exactly how much of these perfluoroalkyl substances were found. Uh, where do they come from? Well, I suspect that uh, somewhere along the line, the, uh, the orange juice is, is stored in these large uh, plastic bins made of polyethylene. And uh, it is quite a common practice to treat those polyethylene containers with fluorine gas. And the fluorine will 
bind to the polyethylene and make it uh, impermeable to uh, loss of flavor so that the flavor from the oranges does not exit and nothing else comes in through through the container. That is my guess on, on you know, where it comes from. Of course, perfluoroalkyl substances and small concentrations are also found in, in water uh, because uh, we use so many of these chemicals that they eventually end up in the in, in groundwater. And uh, Coca-Cola, of course, uses water to make uh, uh, this. Uh, uh, I mean, they shouldn't because uh, they claim that it's just orange juice with no mixture in it. So, you know, that it's just squeezed orange, but who knows? Anyway, um, I don't think that there's any... Uh, danger from the uh, amount of these perfluoroalkyl substances, although, of course, we'd have to know just how much was, was found in there. But it's a sort of an interesting class action lawsuit. And uh, if one is going to launch such class action lawsuits without making any reference to uh, whether or not the amounts of these chemicals that are, have been detected are at dangerous levels, uh, then we're going to, to uh, open the gates to all kinds of lawsuits because, as I mentioned, chemists are getting better and better at detecting smaller and smaller amounts of substances. And eventually we'll find it's contaminated with everything else. And, you know, but that doesn't mean that it is posing any kind of, uh, of a danger. Okay, I think we have uh, Elizabeth uh, with a question. Yes, uh, good, good afternoon, Dr. Joe. I was down at the Riviere de Melil in Terrebonne this morning, and I noticed that the water there is very, very yellow. And I was wondering, do you know, would it be dangerous for the fish and the flora there? Because it's what, to what do, do with about? the chemicals that they're throwing on the, everywhere. You're talking about the, the St. Lawrence River? Well, it's the Melil. Yeah, it's, the, it's between Laval and Terrebonne. It's the Melil River. But it's yellow, and the, and they're all over in the streets. They're throwing the uh, to melt the snow and the ice. They're putting these blue and gravel and sodium and calcium, and it all washes down in the sewers and goes into the river. And I was wondering, does it affect the river, the the fish and the? Well, the sir, they, they, the salt content, uh, of course, it could affect it. Uh, so could the calcium content. But I mean, I don't know what the yellow color would be. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, it, it's the pollution. And I think, why, why do they do this, the city? I mean, it, look, in summer, it's fine. The water's white. But now, during the winter, it's yellow. And it's really well, I think it. Well, of course, there's a lot of, of muck and mud and guck that gets washed down in the winter as well, leached out by the snow from the soil, right? Yes, right. But, but, but uh, it, yeah, I mean, it's possible that some of the, the um, uh, calcium chloride and the sodium chloride, uh, and in some cases, urea that they put to melt the ice, that that could... Uh, have an effect on the wildlife, but I don't know why it would be yellow. I'd, I'd have to see that. And, yeah, what they're yeah. selling is this blue material in these plastic uh, containers, yes. and they're throwing this all around the shopping centers. I mean, I don't know yeah, what that I, chemical is. Uh, well, that that is a blend of calcium chloride and sodium chloride. Yeah, but well, I don't know. I don't know why that would make the water yellow. Uh, I don't know. I'd, well, I'd have it, to see it. It's uh, end up uh, in the sewers for sure because yeah, it's melting. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. Everything that we put on the streets eventually it does end up in the sewer. Yeah. I mean, that's not a, a pleasant thing. I mean, yeah. and eventually, of course, it uh, can end up in groundwater. And that's that, right. Yeah. That's I don't know why the real, city allows real, that. That's the real concern. And uh, 
Now, I, I can tell you that when you do a chemical analysis of groundwater, you will find thousands, literally thousands of different compounds in there. Yeah, right. uh, all kinds. I mean, you know, from the food remnants, uh, from our, the remnants of our fecal matter, remnants of urine, especially uh, residues from medications that people take. All of that ends up in water systems. And the municipal uh, water treatment systems uh, are not designed to take out uh, these tiny traces of materials, you know. Right. The municipal water systems are, are designed to make sure that uh, uh, bacteria are properly neutralized uh, and that uh, gross contaminants are removed by the filtration system, yeah. but it's not just, substances down to yeah. parts per billion. It's just know? specifically in the winter that it's yellow like that. And, you know, mm -hmm. the, the rest of the year they find the water. So I don't know. I mean... Well, it, it it very possibly could be from from the salts that uh, yeah. they're put in. Anyway. Okay, I just wanted yeah, to bring okay. that up because that's worrying to see this condition of the water around in the river. Right. Okay. Yeah, thank I, you. I, thank you. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Uh, <laughs> there's only one way I know of that water becomes yellow, but uh, I think that would require a lot of uh, people peeing into it to have a noticeable effect. Anyway, listening to the Dr. Joe show, we'll check traffic and be right back. Miracles from molecules are dawning every day. Discoveries for happiness in a fabulous array. A never-ending search is on. Let me uh, continue a little bit about uh, contaminants in water. I tell you another interesting story. If you ever looked at your label on laundry detergents, shampoos, some skincare products, uh, you'll find sodium laureth sulfate, very often just uh, with the acronym SLES, sodium laureth sulfate. This is a sectant, which means it's a molecule that has one end with an affinity for oil, and another that's attracted to water. And this means that it has the ability to remove oily residues from a surface, whether that surface is a fabric or a strand of hair or skin or the kitchen floor. But here's the rub. Whenever this substance, sodium lord sulfate, is manufactured, there's an undesired side product. It's called 1,4-dioxane. And uh, some of this makes it into the final product, unless some special methods are used to remove it. Well, the problem is that this uh, dioxane uh, is categorized by the International Agency for Research on Cancer as being a possible human carcinogen. Well, uh, of course, that is based on animal studies. Uh, we don't have any study that shows that it causes cancer in humans. It's based on essentially feeding large amounts to animals. But nevertheless, it, you know, it becomes a concern anytime that you have something that is labeled a carcinogen. So this is the reason why the state of New York introduced legislation starting in 2000, 
23, that is this year, that laundry detergents that contain more than two parts per billion of this contaminant, one for dioxane, cannot be sold legally. And this has affected a number of products like Arm & Hammer, Clean Burst, Tide Original, and Gain Original, which were slightly above that level. They exceeded the level and therefore they should not be sold, but they are still being sold. And uh, that, those sales would be illegal unless the, the producer has applied for a one-year waiver from compliance. And that is allowed by the law, as long as evidence is supplied that they're actually working to lower the levels of dioxane in their, in their detergent. And that can be done. Uh, there are ways to alter the reaction conditions or by applying a technique known as vacuum stripping to remove the dioxane from the uh, detergent. Anyway, the press reported widely on the implementation of this new law and ended up alarming many consumers who wondered if they were putting their health at risk by using the toxic detergents. Well, no. Nobody is going to be affected by wearing clothes that have been washed in detergents containing a few parts per billion of 1,4-dioxane, which in terms of its toxic potential is an insignificant amount. In any case, the chemical is extremely soluble in water, so it all goes down the drain. But of course, therein lies the problem and the reason for the legislation. Whatever goes down the drain will come back and bite us if it is not removed by sewage treatment or municipal water filtration. And while ozone treatment, which is used by some municipalities, in fact, it is used in Montreal, while that can remove dioxane, the standard filtration and chlorine disinfection methods are not effective. The activated carbon filters that you probably have at home in your filter jugs, those also do not remove dioxane. That's why the best way to reduce exposure to this chemical is to not introduce it into the environment in the first place. And that is the reason for the law in New York State. But, you know, actually, shampoos, and the, the legislation does not apply to them, they contain much more dioxane than laundry detergents. So I think steps will need to be taken to establish limits uh, here as well. Uh, another approach, of course, is to reformulate and to use surfactants that are not made by the same process that sodium lauryl sulfate is made by. And there are some interesting surfactants uh, which are produced by bacteria, for example, or something called laurel glucoside, which is made from laurel alcohol that can be extracted from, from uh, uh, coconut fat and uh, mixed with glucose, uh, and that makes for a surfactant. But these are more expensive and less effective than sodium lauryl sulfate, which, is, which cleans very well, and it's also very gentle on skin and on, on clothes. So the whole intent here is to try to reduce the, uh, amount of dioxane that eventually ends up in drinking, drinking water. We don't been shown in humans, but has been shown in animals to be a problem. We don't want that in our, our drinking, uh, drinking water. But there's another issue uh, here. And that is that the, the chemical that is actually used in the production of sodium lauryl sulfate 
ethylene oxide, that is what gives rise to the dioxane, uh, that itself is a carcinogen. Now, this is a gas, so you're not going to come into contact with this in, in, in the finished product. The concern here is for workers in chemical plants where ethylene oxide is produced and for people who live around such facilities. And there are many such production facilities because ethylene oxide is a widely used chemical. It's, it's used in numerous to make numerous consumer items. <clears throat> Uh, it's also used as a sterilizing agent for medical items like bandages, sutures, and various surgical implements. Now, for workers in an ethylene oxide production plant, there are sophisticated air filtration systems that will remove the chemical, but inevitably some of the gas does escape into the environment. And there is suspicion that the higher than expected rate of cancer in Louisiana and Texas and Sarnia, in the so-called chemical valleys, where there are many, many chemical uh, plants, uh, the suspicion is that this excess rate of cancer is at least partly due to ethylene oxide exposure. Uh, as one might expect, the industry, of course, denies such a link. But epidemiologists are quite certain that this is real, that people who live uh, in areas where there is such a large concentration of chemical plants. I mean, if you've ever been to Sarnia or, or uh, the Chemical Valley in Louisiana, you see one chemical plant after the other with all kinds of installations, huge chimneys, etc. cetera. And uh, there is an issue there that needs to be you know, uh, addressed. Of course, cause for stopping the production of ethylene oxide, that's totally unrealistic because this chemical is needed for manufacturing of all kinds of consumer goods, including ethylene glycol, which is the <laughs> ingredient that we all use in the radiators in our cars. Our cars could not function without ethylene glycol, which is made from ethylene oxide. So there's no way to, to ban the production of ethylene oxide. But the problem with released into the environment can and should be solved by uh, by technology, and uh, you know anything uh, in a large chemical plant can be prevented from uh, being uh, released. All right. Well, I'm going to release you right now because we've come to the uh, end of the show. The hour has flown by, but rest assured, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. And until then, I'm Josh Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.